Hello, and welcome to Pale Reflections, a proud member of the Doof Network, where we reflect on Wildbo's most charmed work as it releases. I'm Ruben Morehouse. And I'm Elliot Diebold. And we are here to talk about Lost for Words, chapters 1.5, 1.6, and Flyer and App, which I guess <laughs> is the name of it. Yeah, the, the week's bonus material. Yes. Now let's begin our reflections, shall we? Uh, 1.5 picks up where 1.4 left off, with Verona, our point of view for this chapter, and the others heading to the Kennel of War and um, walking inside far too casually. (laughs) I'm sure it'll be fine. Yeah, I love how sort of right from the start, there's this, like, ascetic being built. Like, they're in the run-down part of town. There's, like, unused warehouses. I think, like, a a warehouse is actually mentioned, which is just, like, horror setting or Mm -hmm. urban horror setting 101. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think think it is Verona herself who says this feels like it's a haunted house. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She does quip about that um, once they get in. But it's like, you know, there's... um, there's like a whole paragraph dedicated to explaining this part of town it sort of mentions even the nice things there's like a building that is sort of a renovated like barn Mm. which is just like you know literally shoddy foundations so like there's like i think there's like a nice house that's been built but it's crammed between two shitty ones with like unkempt gardens like there's really this sort of vibe of like even the nice things here are surrounded by ugliness which is maybe a metaphor for all of kennett as well as just like I think setting us up for this this on this confrontation we're about to head into with John, like there's yeah. this idea of even the nice stuff here is surrounded by darkness. Yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, you're right, and I think I don't know. Maybe let's introduce this idea. I'll introduce this idea now. I think one of the major things that this chapter is doing is similar to last chapter, how we got Avery basically realizing that she's so out of her depth. I think this chapter is that for Verona slash Lucy, or the implications of that we'll talk about in the next chapter, but um, yes. that's what I think this is. And I think explicitly this is basically showing us, this is the, you know, apart from Matthew and Edith, who are probably towing the line between practitioner and other, John is very much an other. Verona explicitly calls out in this chapter, he's just not human. And he is like one of the nicest ones. Him and probably Toad Swallow actually are really, really nice from what we see. Um, and yeah, even so, Alpi. Alpi seems well. Right. Alpi seems nice too. Yeah. Even so, the the level of danger that they're in, like, is so high. And I think that this chapter is showing us, like, no, no, these things are. You should be scared of these <laughs> yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's wait till we get to the end to talk a little bit about how yeah. much that actually hits Verona, um, and, and then also Lucy. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you're yeah. right. Like, it, it's definitely. A big thing this chapter is doing is, I think, making things a lot more real for the Kenneteers. Um, like, we sort of mentioned how, you know, the camp out um, was maybe sending the wrong vibes to them. And yeah. Avery seemed to the main one who picked on how out of, picked up on how out of their depth they were. Um, yeah. And it's, it's starting to become a lot more real uh, in this one. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. I think the other theme that this chapter introduces, one of the other major themes that I think is going to be a, a huge part of this story and something definitely to keep an eye on, Yep. The idea that Cherry Pop is a lunatic and I love her. <laughs> She's so great. <laughs> uh, isn't Cherry Pop just the fucking best of this oh, chapter? She's uh, so like, good. She's she is the best goblin that I've ever met. I love kick, her. Kick my ass had me <laughs> laughing for a for a solid minute. Yeah, she kinda alternates between being basically like a stupid 
dog, and I'm not in an insulting way. Like she's acting like a like a spaniel almost. We should just kind of like latch onto some idea and just like chase it down like a spaniel <laughs> eel or a terrier or something. Um, yeah. And then this really like sad, <laughs> pathetic <laughs> thing. I don't know. It's just like it works so well. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like um, embracing her own patheticness seems to be part mm. of her thing. Um, mm. Uh, yeah, like I mean, her offer of gifts at the end is just fucking hilarious too. Yeah, she offers them gobs of stuff, <sighs> which is yeah. very unsettling. Great, who knows what that means? Um, yeah, and we also continue to uh, kind of characterize our main characters. Obviously, Verona here does a bit more like practitioner experimentation, which is the kind of thing that we've defined her as as the the most practitionery of the group. Um, and yeah, we continue to see that here. She she makes this. She does this interesting idea where she tries to use a fire rune to create light, and it doesn't work um, because that's not quite how fire runes work. But it's very fun, kind of magical ad hocing and like rules, <laughs> like yeah. pushing the boundaries of the rules to try and figure out how it all works, which is something well, that I'm really excited to see more of. Yeah, it's exactly the sort of stuff we started to touch on when we were talking about Verona last week, and and even in her notes, she is trying to wrap her head around these fundamental rules and then experiment with them. And we saw yeah. her throwing the, the hat, and we see it here too. I think the really cool thing about this moment is having it in the chapter right after those notes were released in 1.4. Like, I doubt I'm the only person who read the description of the diagram Verona was drawing and immediately just opened up those notes and was like, okay, so she's got this and then- yeah. and and, and like I read the description about three times and, and came up with this theory that she was trying to funnel heat through, but I didn't know what mm. for, but like then mm. that turned out to sort of be what it was. Um, so I, I just thought that was a really cool way of like, you know, showing how these, this extra material is enhancing the story on its own end, but like is also being worked back into the story in a fun way. Like it's, yeah. while Bo created a, a little scenario where we all got to go and practice using <laughs> the, the the diagram lesson we yeah. all got in that extra material it was so much fun yeah i love how the chapter after each piece of bonus material has explicitly tied it in first with lucy's notes now with the diagram stuff and i mean we don't know but it seems like the bonus material at the end of this chapter is going to be explicitly tied into <laughs> what the next chapter is going to be about um i mean at the very least it, it worked into 1.6 itself yes uh, i suspect I suspect it will also work into one point yes. seven. I think it'd be crazy for him not <laughs> it'd to. It'd be very weird if it didn't. I, yeah. I agree. Um, but yeah, it's just it just is showing like yes, these are great little pieces on their own, but they also feel like they're enhancing the even the next chapter in the story as well in a great way. Yeah, exactly. Like it, it sort of shows how great they are as extra material and that they're yeah cutting both ways. Yeah. Um, so they continue to explore the house when suddenly things go south. Uh, Lucy is abducted i wrote here in the notes disappears but that's too passive of wording she is abducted <laughs> verona rushes after her only to also be abducted and we find uh, from verona's point of view it's john holding them both upon threat of violence a knife or a, a, a gun basically waiting to confirm their verification that they are who they say slash think they are yeah and like you know as we sort of said verona up until now has been like oh haunted house vibes and yeah um like lucy's actually been on her to like pay attention because she's just mm. like you know fucking around with the runes which is like you know okay like she's kind of trying to do something useful generate light but also you know she's just like fucking around with yeah she's notes. mucking around 100 percent. yeah um and i think the part of this that i really like is as she's running after Lucy, she's desperately trying to think of like which of these fun little experimentations that I've done are actually useful. And yeah. she kind of comes up with 
nothing. There's nothing yep. that she could do in this situation. She literally is powerless. Yeah, and, and yeah, and and uh, the other side of that is she can't even really get the post-it notes out. She she could, like she comments yeah. on how hard it is to do while she's running. So yeah, she she's been experimenting with all this stuff. None of it actually proves even remotely useful, and she just kind of has to let John come up and like you know take her hostage as well. Yeah, and it's actually Avery who kind of you know whose calmness saves the day. Well, <laughs> yeah, and um, I mean Toad Swallow steps in as well. Yeah, actually, you're right, but like. Uh, I mean, it's just, I love, like, just because I don't think we're going to talk about Avery as much this week because she mm. was definitely the focus of last week, but mm. it's so Avery that it's somehow bad for her because she's the one who didn't get taken hostage, <laughs> yeah. so she was left alone. Like, uh. it, 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 you know, the universe still found a way to make this terrible for Avery. Yeah. Like, whereas if it had been one of the other two, it would have been bad, but it wouldn't have been hitting that specific, you, you know, character flaw that the other two have. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, we kind of touched on this idea, but it goes from zero to hundred very quick. And I think it's, <laughs> I love that John, who is kind of the nicest of the others so far, right? <laughs> like he seems pretty nice. I mean, basically later on in the chapter, he talks about how all he does every day is watch TV and play video games and pretend to cook food. <laughs> like <laughs> he seems I mean, pretty chill. I mean, his other job is to run around and kill people who might be coming into the town that shouldn't be, but Sure, no, wait, I, I see your that's point. That's better yeah. than just running around and killing people full stop, right? <laughs> Which it yeah, or, seems like the other others maybe not necessarily do, but I don't know. It seems like it's implied that at least some of them are doing that. Yeah, yeah. Um, um yeah. So I just wanted to bring up there's an extra little tidbit we get throughout all this. Um, sort of as, as all this stuff with John is is going down. Um, the to- Toad Toad quickly mentions he hasn't been summoned in months. Mm. Um. I just find that interesting because in one point two he sold himself as somebody who was like employed for want of a better term, mm. uh, as someone to tutor kids again for want of a better term. Um, so is it normal for him to go months without getting a gig, or is this mm. like I don't know? I'm ju- I'm just like in full on paranoia mode, I guess, at the moment, and I'm wondering, you know, well, what's going on with Toad Swallow's employment? Like, is, does this is this part of why he's trying to train the others? Like, is is there some scandal? that Toad Swallow was involved in and now he's like, you know, having to, having to take a backseat in his own business enterprise. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. You're right. I think it's possible that when he says I haven't, not in months, he's not referring to being summoned, but being compelled. The wording is slightly ambiguous, but you're right. That's fair. Maybe something else is going on here. Um, it didn't flag for me, but it could be. And I'm we're going to get into some wacky theories soon, so we'll see how that <laughs> yeah. stacks up with them. But I guess, I guess, speaking of paranoid, back to John. Well, okay, here's the thing I love about John in this circumstance is he's... Okay, maybe you could take a read that he's behaving a bit paranoid here, but basically I think he, after he explains it, is being 100% rational here. Because <laughs> when you think about the world that he lives in, Constantly, if he lets his guard down, he could get murdered or, like, permanently enslaved. That's the world that being another is. Um, and to a lesser extent, that's the world that being involved as a practitioner also is. But it's even worse for another where there's kind of, like, it's kind of open season on you all the time, right? Um, yeah. So John has set up situations to protect himself from this, and it seems overboard, but that's only in comparison to the real world. And so I love that 
like when I was thinking about this, I thought, well, yeah, John seems a bit overboard, but that's just because this world is overboard. And actually listening to this, he's being 100% rational and it it's the perfect way of representing this world. Like to be rational in this world, you have to act in a way that is fucking bonkers. <laughs> and like these kids aren't doing that and they're going to suffer from it. Yeah, I, I agree. It, like it, it reads as paranoid until I, I heard his explanation. I thought the same thing. And based on everything we've heard about how, like all these others are so scared of practitioners that yeah, it's sort of like okay, you know the the classic mo for practitioners does seem to be to come in and kill or enslave them, yeah, which is just like yeah, I mean I guess you would, wouldn't you? Like he, he definitely part of John's whole thing that we'll touch on soon is like he is not someone who can leave the battlefield behind, which is mm-hmm. a bit why he's acting like this. But that's yeah. also maybe the reason he's still alive, you know. So it's like. You know, he he says there were like twenty of his kind, and he's now like the only one the left. Last one. So yeah. so it's it's it seems pretty justifiable to think the way he does. Yeah, I mean, I I'm I I was kind of reacting as the girls were as this scene started to unfold, but after John explains it, I'm kind of like, I mean, yeah, yeah right, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Um, there's this great bit as well when Toad Swallow is justifying himself after Lucy is questioning him. Oh, sorry, it's Verona on whether uh, he intended this to happen. And his response is, I thought it was a done deal. None of us can't hurt any of you. And he kind of slips into this. He, he And Verona calls it out. He slips. Uh, he loses his uh, slightly aristocratic demeanor and slips back into kind of goblin-y talk, which I absolutely love. It just makes him so relatable and lovely. I mean, I would describe, I, I, I don't know, uh, I pictured it as very Cockney. Like, I, I pictured him as kind of devolving into Cockney. Yeah. Which is a bit like, you know, that's what the orcs in Lord of the Rings, like a lot of them sort of speak in a, in a Cockney-ish accent. Yeah. Um, and that's what I saw it as, which is, you know, if you're sort of going off like um, somewhere like, you know, Britain where these, you know, which tends to be a bit more aristocratic and all that, like it's sort of, you know, him, uh, yeah, dropping his facade a bit, um i mean i can't help but notice that also he manages to sneak in this like none of us can't hurt you like mm. it's, this, it's this double negative so you know again putting my paranoid hat on is it all part of the you know, <laughs> is this on purpose a distraction um yeah I, like i don't know how much uh, to toad swallow doesn't seem to advanced thinking thinker type so maybe i'm i'm being a bit paranoid but um I mean, to me, moments like this just really highlight what a clever idea it was from a writing standpoint to add the goblins to this scene. Because, mm. like, John is not a chill person, no. um, in the, especially in this scene. So, like, the, you know, obviously, this is a, still an intense chapter, and, and next chapter is basically mostly dedicated to dealing with the ramifications of yeah. it. But it would have been so much harder to get through without the goblins. The goblins just add this levity to bits of it so you can break up these really intense moments with like you know cherry pop telling people to kick her ass and stuff like it, <laughs> I, I just think it made the chapter so much easier to read um in terms of how much emotional investment it was yeah i also do really love the fact that he just hangs out with the goblins like on a surface level that seems crazy but once we get into the scene about them talking about like war in general we get to this bit of Basically, the goblins just seem to get the kind of grossness inherent in fighting a war and watching friends mm. die and being muddy and diseased and, and all that stuff. It's very goblin, and, and I absolutely love that that's the, 
the nugget that uh, John and the goblins have really bonded over. Yeah, it's so interesting. Like, I, I want to preface all our conversation about the John stuff with saying, like, I am not a war veteran. I don't yeah. even really know any that closely. Yeah. Uh, probably an embarrassingly large part of my concept of what it's like to be a veteran comes from movies and TV, which probably mm. means most of it is, like, you know, half true. If, yeah, if that... or even just glorified in a way that the reality yeah. isn't. Um, we maybe get a bit more of a pass on that because in in the world of pale, you know, things are so built by meaning that, that, that maybe like it's a bit more like that on purpose. But um, I, I wouldn't know. And uh, but yeah, this whole this whole aspect of yeah, like there's a there's such a rawness and like a you know violent part of war that you you know people who haven't been in that wouldn't get. Like that makes yeah. so much sense to me. But goblins kind of have that in their own way. And so it's like, it's it's a little different, but it's close enough that John can, yeah, like work on their level a little bit or, or interact with them because there's an honesty to them that he gets because he's seen that ugly part to humanity. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <sighs> um, let's touch on this moment. I want to read out this line where... Uh, people are insulting Cherry Pop, and she says, I'm so dumb, so ugly, Cherry Pop said, rus- rustling through trash. She sounded mournful, like it was assumed to be fact. <laughs> You're... Avery started. That's... You shouldn't stay- say stuff like that, Cherry. <laughs> it's so Avery. I love it, because she obviously first wants to say that you're not, like you're not ugly, and then that would be a lie, so she can't say that. And then she goes to say, that's not true, or that's a lie, or something like that. And again, that would be a lie, so she can't say that. So she just kind of lands on this week, like, you shouldn't say stuff like that, Cherry, which, again, might just be a lie because goblins probably should say stuff like that. It's probably tied into, like, where they get their power from, that they're saying, like, grotesque and self-pitiable kind of things. Yeah, I mean, they seem to revel in and be built by disgustingness and grossness. Yeah. So, yeah, like, I think I can't remember the exact phrasing, but it was in, like, 1.2. It's like they were the embodiments of, yeah, grossness or something. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, yeah, I mean, for all we know, like, it, it's actually good for Cherry Pop that she does that. But the way, yeah, again, this <laughs> moment, just Cherry Pop is fucking hilarious. And every desperation, Avery. yeah, to try and be wholesome and just can't do it because she can't lie. And that means in her head she knows that Cherry Pop is ugly. <laughs> I would just like, just the, the image of the way Cherry Pop says, says it, like it was so vivid in my head of her just like rustling through trash and she's like, oh, I'm so dumb, so ugly. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. Uh, it's, just this it's... like acceptance. <laughs> ah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, it was so, yeah. Again, it was such a good idea to add them into the chapter to kind of even out like the intense emotional nature of everything about John. Yeah, especially Cherry Pop, who just is the best. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, the the girls, goblins, and dog continue to discuss the case. Uh, they they're talking about John. They talk about the hungry choir as a suspect. They talk about the alibis for uh, Toad Swallow and Cherry and John. And all generally, you know, seem quite innocent of the events. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's, there's nothing to tie any of these people to it yet. But um, I love, I love. We get more details on the choir, which obviously, based on the way one point six ends, is going to, you know, start to become a thing. Yep. Um, and they're just like they're so fucking weird. But the idea that these people that we saw, it's not like I, I'm not going to lie. I sort of had this vision of the choir as like a group of bodies that were like a hive mind or something. Yeah, but it's not that they're almost just like uh, they're projections. Yeah, of they're like the, the symptom the of the underlying thing. 
yeah like they're that's not what it is those are just like simple representations of it like yeah. it, raindrops out on the outer ring of the storm yeah. was such a great way to sort of yeah. solidify this concept to me it's just so cool it gave me the concept of like these are some like four-dimensional thing and those people are just there like us viewing it through one through the third dimension but there's a whole other dimension to it that we just can't see you know? yeah yeah exactly like it's that sort of thing where it's like this is just how your brain processes what you're seeing or this is how maybe not even your brain this is how the universe sort of processes giving it a physical form mm. in in this state yeah yeah um so john talks about what he does during the day and he says he cleans and sharpens his weapons i watch some tv i read and play video games and I'm just, I know this isn't important, Elliot, but I'm so curious what kind of video games John plays. <laughs> like, is it FPSs? Like, does he play Call of Duty and shit? Or is it like, that's just like too much of a trope and he just plays chill stuff like Stardew Valley or like like dog-based games like Nintendogs? <laughs> yeah, maybe he tried to play Watch Dogs, but yeah, like, yeah. it didn't actually have dogs like yeah, he thought. Not what he wanted it to be. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then he was like, oh, wait, this is about... Some kind of military activist. I could get behind this. Um, yeah, for, like, actually, though, like, I, I, after you wrote this, I was trying to decide, and I honestly couldn't. I know, like, it could be either, right? Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe he varies it up. I don't know. Maybe he's, like, really into intense strategy games or something. Mm, I could um, see that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's funny, because this... This totally maps to, like, you know, like, I know some people who are in the, the Australian military and, like, they do a lot of playing video games and watching TV when they're not on duty. So yeah. I was like, yeah, like, I like I love this idea because he's this, he like, you know, he, he's this mosaic of all these people who died in a war, right? Like, mm. I, I think we sort of go into it a bit more than we even did last chapter, but, like, this... Yeah. It's like these dogs as a concept are, you know, when a bunch of people die in similar ways, I guess there's enough of a psychic leftover of, of bits and pieces of them that sometimes it can coalesce into a whole mm. new being. It kind of reminds me of Edith in a way. It, mm. Like it's, it's a bit different, like it's more themed, but it's it's not a totally separate concept, I don't think. Like there's there's some overlap. Um, And, and so what's... What's interesting though is like because John talks about the way he works is it's not like he's not a whole person in the like you know he doesn't need to eat or whatever but like he's he's got like extra servings of like being a fucking badass fighter um, <laughs> yeah. as we saw um, and, and so part of that is he's kind of always on like I find this concept so fascinating that he he's found like I think the closest he can to peace in Kennet but that still involves having to go and do patrols and kill people every now and then because he mm. always has to be a bit of a soldier. Yeah, I kind of want to touch on the idea that, that something that I just love about this universe, and now we've kind of got our some examples of it in in Pale, the idea that um, basically John is from a dualistic perspective, he's a creature that exists as a amalgamation of soldier tropes, right? Like that's yeah. explicitly yeah. what he is, and I I love that so much. I love the fact that like uh, the the other verse stories are so explicitly about writing and taking writing aspects of writing and making them implicit and a part of the story. <laughs> and John as a, as a, what is explicitly a collection of tropes that then can be played with and deconstructed and, and messed with. It's just so fun. Like the fact that in universe, he is a collection of tropes and from a, you know, authorial perspective, he's a collection of tropes 
that we can then explore and and use to like dive into that and it's effective and efficient from a story perspective and it also just kind of gets us in the head of this guy is a capital s soldier like you would see in a movie and that's explicit and in universe (laughs) and it's so like it's just so great i just love how well that can happen in the in the other verse you're right there's like this blurring of the line between watsonian and doyleist yes it's this kind of merger of the two of them and yeah it's great not only because we get to explore these things in a a very like kind of explicit way yeah uh, as you mentioned but it's also like for you just you know if you want to talk about suspension of disbelief or whatever it's great for that because the story can get away with doing very tropey things it, you know and just putting a little spin on them in a way that it's just like yeah but that's how it works yeah in this because story. it's a trope it's important <laughs> in this story and that's what's and it, great about it and it makes it like a lot less grating than it might otherwise be in, yeah. in other stories yeah 100%. Um, like just just to, to to jump off a bit more on what we learn about john and, and mm. even the hungry choir in here um mm. i think this started to coalesce a bit more for me we talked last week about how there was sort of maybe themes emerging around like justice mm. um yeah and all this the more the more we sort of learn about john the more i started to maybe i don't know narrow that down or focus in on like this other part which i, I think maybe this is a story that's talking a lot about consequences mm um because what i've noticed is a lot of the others in this town are the results of human emotions like you know like things like mm. or not even emotions but like you know things like the hungry choir john and even edith they're like and charles to me the most explicit yeah. he's like built out of his characters the one thing we know about him is he is defined by the consequence to when he had it he went too far in an argument about justice and punishment right <laughs> yeah exactly whereas like these you know all the what are these other others they're literally constructed from like the echoes or um mm. you know leftover sort of psychic energy of mm. of humans and they 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 are consequences of other things john is a consequence yeah. of the war edith is a consequence of like a bunch of various fire related you know tragedies Incidents, yeah um the the hungry choir is this kind of weird thing that's popped up because of you know the way humans like to do little games and rituals and mm. you know put themselves in danger um so yeah i don't like I, I guess you know to tie things to this this sort of justice stuff we we're talking about like i think maybe this is more broadly something like a story that might start to tackle like what what are the consequences of actions and stuff? And I've got, you know, we've got three teenage girls who kind of jumped headfirst into this world without considering the consequences. Like I think mm. having three 13 year old protagonists now makes even more sense to me as, if that's what you want to talk about. Cause 13 year olds are obviously notoriously bad at considering that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Let's keep an eye on it. Cause you're right. This is something that's starting to emerge. I, I love the idea that, we can start looking at what are the key themes and from that, what are the inferences we can make about the story? Um, we're starting to see the idea yeah. of consequences, especially consequences from human action becoming major. Um, so let's, let's keep an eye out. Yeah. Well, like, I mean, something 1.6 starts to seed is that the, the Kenneteers are noticing that there's all these daggers just like everywhere. Well, that's what how Lucy interprets yeah. them or meat sacks under plastic, whatever metaphor your site chooses. Um, <laughs> they're everywhere and there's maybe like i think we talked about this even last chapter there's maybe something to do with like carmine beast's death associated yeah. with that yeah um there's some sort of you know there's something wrong in the town without yeah. without that role we, and um you know that's a just a consequence of the death like you know what, what are the consequences of having this fundamental part of 
reality missing from the area. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the conversation moves on to the the gifts. Uh, the, so we conclude our interview portion. We get to talking about the gifts. Uh, of course, each of the others needs to give gifts here. Um, so Toad Swallow, as his gift here, teaches the group about the rule of threes, which again is a very literal uh, authorial thing that has been brought into the universe, which I love. Um, the basic idea that repeating things, especially three times or sequences of three times, makes them have like weight, take on much more weight. Yeah, I think what Toad Swallow sort of says is that three is a powerful number, and that's yeah. why he brings up, you know, we've got our trio of Kenneteers here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, as you said, I mean, people who've listened to We've Got Worm, We've Got Ward will know that, like, the three beat is, um, you know, a thing in storytelling. And, of course, uh, you know, as we were just saying, in Pact, it's just become, uh, sorry, in Pale, it's just become yeah. a thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love it. Like, again, this is the kind of stuff I love the most in this in in the other verse kind of world the idea of story things becoming literal it's great <laughs> i think my favorite is still the stuff um avery was talk sorry no verona was talking about in the car in like 1.3 where it was sort of like you know the there was like a performance aspect to it oh, yeah. like if you put if you put yeah. on a show like it literally encouraging the characters to maybe put on to a bit of a dramatic. show yeah it is great yeah 100 percent um I like that we're kind of getting this vibe from the three as well, where they're going around it and kind of collecting trinkets to use. I just find that so much fun. Like what, what tricks it, it's basically explicitly them collecting tricks to have up their sleeve, <laughs> which makes for such compelling um, resolutions to conflicts later when they can think, Oh, I'll just chuck this dog tag and summon John as I stride confidently into battle. Like that's, I just can't wait to see some of these things pay off. Cause I know they're going to be so great. Yeah, like, the other thing they get here is this little, like, um, slug from the gun that, like, emanates mm. heat. Mm. And it's it's powered by an elemental or something, I think is what John says. Yeah. So it's, like, this, this really neat little thing. And you're right, like, they're just, it feels like they're starting to amass this little, like, collection of trinkets that, you know, they might be able to pull out at one point and, and do some cool tricks with. Um, but the dog tags that John gives them are absolutely like the coolest fucking thing. Like we were just yeah. talking about how they, you need a bit of drama in this world. And like, oh, what yeah. fucking better drama is there? Like they have to do like the cool, cool guys don't look at explosion thing yeah. where they, they like throw the dog tags on the ground and then have to stride confidently for five steps. And then John will just be behind them armed. Like, yeah, so that's, good. So good. it's yeah. I, I, I really hope they get to use that. And it's just this scene where we just see John go fucking, ham on a bunch of people like yeah like you know i want to see i want to see him turn into john wick for a scene basically (laughs) i think that'd be great (sighs) hell yeah i mean i'm so with you um but yeah and and so i think we're about to hit 1.6 and and start talking about the next chapter um and so just like quickly before we do that i I wanted to talk about something that becomes very apparent to us in 1.6 is like you know Mm. lucy is not okay after this chapter she really Mm. you know copped a uh, you know, uh, she had a really bad time yes. uh, at John's house. Basically, she thought she was going to die. Which I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, and what's interesting though is like Lucy does not have a very charitable read of Verona and how Verona acted in this chapter mm. in one point six. Mm. So something I did when I was rereading this to take the notes is I was really trying to focus on like how Verona was thinking and specifically how she was feeling about lucy because i kind of got the vibes that lucy's not that impressed with verona in in her chapter yeah and 
so to sort of focus in on Verona, like obviously we, we talked about how at the start she's not really taking it seriously, but definitely once the shit hits the fan with John and he's holding all the weapons at their faces, um, like her entire focus is on trying to make sure Lucy is like cool. Yeah. Like Verona is very much like, uh, <clears throat> you know, she, she realizes she's nervous mostly just because she sees that Lucy's freaking out. Yeah. 100%. Like for her, all of the emotion around this is just basically about not wanting Lucy to be hurt. Um, which is like, you know, more credit than Lucy seems to have been giving her. But then at the same time, she did keep getting distracted. Like she took, yeah. she doesn't get that upset by it. And she does just get sucked into wanting to talk about the lore of dogs of war with John. Yeah. So I can also see Lucy's side where like externally Verona is like, Oh, I'm so worried for Lucy. She doesn't do that much explicitly to sort of comfort Lucy. She like, you know, holds her hand or, or whatever once or twice, but she keeps getting sucked into just like acting normal again and kind of temporarily forgetting about it. Like there's one moment where she actually hands Lucy the slug of the gun while it's warm and mm. like Lucy freaks out a bit and Verona's like, oh yeah, shit. Um, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it, it's interesting. Like I think, you know, maybe Verona's taken after her dad a bit because I don't think she's doing the best job at signaling her care for Lucy here. Yeah, um, or just and that's kind why of Lucy's reacting to the emotional states of the people that she cares about. Yeah, like so she's she's a bit aware of it and she thinks she's doing something, but it's it's clearly not getting through to Lucy, and uh, you know that's that's obviously not going to go well if if this sort of thing keeps up. Yeah, um, and you you can just see this in the relationship she has with her dad as well. Like you know they were obviously fucking terrible at communicating with each other, and I think maybe Verona is more like her dad than she realizes. Yeah, I, I really liked the way that 1.6 kind of recontextualizes this because 1.6 is so much about Lucy and how horribly this has affected her. And when you look back at 1.5, yeah, Verona's like, oh yeah, she's probably not okay because she just had a gun held in her face. But it kind of put a light on it to me of like, she Verona really hasn't grasped just how poor Lucy like how, how how justifiably I'm not I don't want to say it's an unjustifiable reaction of course the strong reaction that Lucy has had to this to almost dying right like yeah 1.5 seemed a lot more serious to me after reading 1.6 than it yeah, did the first time yeah which like, I think is in, in 1.5 I was sort of like whoa that was intense but you know but it's over they got out and, mostly yeah, okay exactly. and then like you see Lucy and you're like no wait they didn't actually yeah Verona and, did and yeah Verona's that's Verona's that's because we're in Verona's head as opposed to Lucy's head, right? Like, she just doesn't have a full grasp of it. And I'm interested to... We don't see, obviously, Avery's thoughts on this, but I am interested to to see what Avery was thinking here and see how Avery responds to this a bit more. Yeah, I have absolutely no idea who's going to be the next POV, but mm. if we're tackling the Hungry Choir, and I'm right that her Avery's family is going to get involved because of their obsession with the oh, singing yeah. competition... And just Avery's general um, kind of being isolated seems to be quite relevant yeah yeah hopefully we'll go back to avery soon yeah yeah i mean it could even be an interlude actually i, I know that no this would be a weird place to, to put an interlude maybe, maybe. yeah break out at the end of an arc with an interlude or something it could be though like well we're going down the garden path a bit <laughs> yeah um, it's probably out actually by the time this episode's oh, no. out so we're just gonna look like idiots unless we get All it right, right let's call it interlude or not um interlude from the hungry quite no oh yeah, I, I have no idea like i mean i could guess i could guess one of the canneteers but i'm just going like i've just got a 33 percent chance of getting it right do it elliot come on big plays okay um i'm calling avery yeah okay um 
Well, that's what I want to call. You, we can both go. It's fine. Uh, we we'll go back to. Right uh, yeah, I'm just trying to think. Like, if we're going to be dealing with the hungry choir, it's either going to be her or maybe back to Verona. So mm. I'll, I'll say Verona if you've got All Avery. Right, cool. Well, let's see. Maybe it'll be released by the time we finish recording. And we can check our results live on stream. <laughs> um, all right. 1.6 is the next chapter. And it's from Lucy's perspective. And the entire chapter we've kind of touched on is, is Lucy struggling to process the fact that she almost died, that she knew in her heart that she was going to die. Yeah. And like, it's uh, like right from the get go of this chapter, you're just being hit with like how... <sighs> Uh, like what Lucy's going through, like the the emotion of this chapter hits you right from the start. Oh yeah, like I just sort of talked about how one point five had the goblins to keep it a bit more lighthearted, and and you know Verona's perspective sort of helps with that. And then we just hit yeah. Lucy's, and she's just alone and like on the verge of a breakdown on her front door, which she can't manage to walk through. Like it, yeah, right from the get go, this chapter is just so much more real than the last one was. Yeah, and there's no. It's a rough chapter, right? It doesn't feel like there's any, like, lighthearted thing to carry us through. We get these not quite nice interactions between Lucy and her mother, but it's just rough being in her head, this chapter. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, it, this chapter does a great job of making you feel how traumatising this was for Lucy. Yeah. Um, I think the thematic through line that I want to pull out about this chapter is, for the first half at least, it's about, obviously, something that we've dived into as as we have, like, you know, young adult protagonists is this theme in, or this trope in modern young adult kind of magical fantasy of like parents just don't understand, you know, <laughs> yeah. like um, parents just don't get it. And, and the way that often represents in, in um, fantasy stories is parents don't understand about this cool new secret world that I'm a part of. Um, yeah. They literally don't understand it. Right. And, and this is kind of explicitly demonstrated between Lucy and her mother who have, I think the best relationship of any of the kids that we've seen with their parents, right? I mean, Avery isn't bad, but um, Lucy yeah. and her mother are cl clearly quite close. And her mother is clearly a pretty good mother. Um, tr notices that something's up with her, kind of makes a few attempts to be available to listen. Um, but Lucy doesn't take those, take them by the hand. Um, yeah. And it seems obvious that the practice here is really even more so getting in the way of this. Like it, it's, basically a multiplier on the barrier that is being built between Lucy and her mother in this chapter. And it's really sad. Yeah. Well, it seems like in general, they're pretty open with each other, but now she's got like a whole pretty large part of her life. That's traumatizing her that she just can't talk to yeah. her mom about. And it, it almost makes me think because something that I think is common across Wapo stories is he'll, he'll, he's trope aware when he's writing things, but he won't be constrained by these tropes. Like he'll play with them. And I actually yeah. kind of want to see whether, this trope will be broken. I'm going to get into this in a little bit, I think, but the idea yeah. of parents just don't understand is a trope that I think is not going to be intact by the end of this story. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think we'll talk about Lucy a lot. Like, obviously, this is the Lucy chapter, but, yeah. like, I, f I think coming into this episode or these two chapters, Lucy was probably the Kenneteer I felt I had the, the least grasp on. Like, mm. Verona was, you know, the, the first chapter, we got so much characterization of Verona at the start. Mm. Lucy got a little bit drowned out in 1.2 by, oh, like, yeah. the awakening ritual. Lucy's story and that may, was about that, the awakening, not about her, right? Yeah, well, that, and that may be my personal focus is maybe, maybe more Lucy stuff I just overlooked. But mm. then, uh, obviously, 1.3 and 1.4, we got a pretty good 
grasp on Avery. Dose of Avery. <laughs> um, so this was very much the the chapter for me that helped me crystallize a lot of like my opinions on Lucy, like yeah. as more than just the one who's focused on the mission, which was sort of my main image of her before then. Like she's someone. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure we'll get into it, but she she carries a lot on her shoulders and really cares about being seen to be strong and it's yeah. it's like sort of heartbreaking to see it from inside her head cuz she just needs a hug. Yeah, man. I feel you. Um to take us to a lighter point, there's this funny beat where <laughs> Lucy's mum <laughs> is talking about how Lucy's, you know, a beautiful young woman and talks about how all her friends remark on it which is such a like mum awkward thing to say <laughs> it really landed for me yeah you're right it's such a mum comment um i mean it, it is lighthearted the first time you read the chapter oh, the second well, time yeah. with the knowledge of that she's bottom ranked in the class yeah where it's going i was just like oh i hate this yeah. <laughs> but yeah the first time it very much just read to me as like oh my god what a mum what a mum yeah um all right now there's one part where... Here we go. <laughs> so buckle in, folks. There's one part where Lucy's mum says about uh, Lucy and Avery and Verona, it's easy to forget you're a trio now. Seems, seems normal, right, Elliot? No. Yeah. It doesn't, okay? Now, okay, now that we're doing a podcast and I don't know how this story is going to end, I'm, I'm finally able to make some fucking bonkers predictions. And this is what I'm doing now. I've talked about the idea that the... Parents just don't understand trope, I think, don't isn't going to last. This is tied into some other things that have been floating around for me. The way that Lucy's mom says trio, which just as a word kind of instinctively feels a bit practitioner-y to me, just makes me feel like there's some more stuff going on here. Here's the, the other beat. The other beat that I think makes me think this is, if we think about our, the central problem with the mystery at the heart of this story, Elliot, is the whoever murdered the, the carmine beast can't lie and so as soon as one of the three asks them hey did you do it and they say no i didn't like or they have they can't they can't have done it right and i think it it would be narratively unfulfilling for it to for them to be able to lie which leaves on the table the hungry choir and charles the hungry choir is can't really be communicated communicated with and charles can lie right but I think the hungry choir is too obvious, and Charles already seems pathetic enough that it's not really him. And so then it would be, yeah, yeah. Everything we know about Charles seems to suggest he is not capable of doing it. Right. So the hungry choir still could be, and and are quite likely at this point to be. But it just feels like it's the it's so obvious right now that the hungry choir are the only people that it could possibly be that it just can't be them narratively, right? Yeah, I I agree with that. Yeah. And so then, if it's none of the others. And it's not Charles, who is not another, I guess. Like, <laughs> who could it be? It would have to be... It would be narratively unfulfilling if it's not somebody that we already know, right? And I would think yeah. maybe the other of the, like, four special people that the Carmine Beast was one of, but they, again, can't lie and also said it wasn't them, right? So I'm kind of like, narratively, who could it be? It has to be somebody that we've met, but who we don't think is involved, right? And the only people that could be are people from the school or the parents and family of these people characters right like they're the only other people that really exist that aren't involved. right so so this is this is a, a take on runaways is that is that what you're doing? <laughs> marvel's I, runaways well yeah here's what i'm thinking you're, you're close I, I i mean basically yeah i think there's more going on here than meets the eye i think the group of others here are not what they appear and i think there's more practitioners in town 
And to extend that, I think either all of or more likely one of the parents of these three is a practitioner in town and they are somehow involved. And I'm going to be more explicit. It's Verona's dad, who just seems like a general sad sack in the way that a practitioner would be. Um, and I think what that means is these three as being awakened are like a bargaining chip being put into play by the others against possibly Verona's dad or whoever the other practitioner ends up being. Maybe it's not the parents. Maybe it's like someone from the school and these are school children being put into play as a bargaining chip. But that's that's where I'm at. There's more practitioners, more's going on, possibly the parents, possibly Verona's dad. So that's where not, I'm at. Not, not that I want to encourage this behavior, mm-hmm. but um, uh, Miss did mention that she went for Avery first. Yeah. So I may I'd maybe walk in Avery's parents well, because yeah, I was... maybe they're the focus of the blackmail if that if that's if that's the theory. Right. I was thinking that as well, but I, it doesn't. Avery's family doesn't quite feel like it. No. Fits right. Um, they just don't feel practitionery. Whereas I could see it Lucy's mum or a- uh, Verona's dad being quite practitionery. Yeah. Um, maybe maybe Miss went to Avery first for plausible dinner. Or you yeah. know, like she yeah yeah. And so to kind of check this, I, I read through and I'd be, I did a read through of all the chapters so far, which is, you know, six of them. And I tried to find references to, they talk about things like, oh, Charles was the practitioner in Kennet and things like that, which aren't, they, they aren't saying that there isn't still a, like they say things like, oh, practitioners from out of town could come in and things like John in this chapter are like, oh, in 1.5, sorry, are, um, oh, Usually we would know if practitioners would have come in, but these are strange times, which could just be him lie in equits lying and thinking, I want to check that you haven't been gotten to by the other people in town, basically. Like, mm. there's things where it kind of, again, implies that this isn't the case, but in a way that it could still be. And I'm, I just, I got to stake some wild claims and this is where my head's <laughs> gone. So that's, that's the uh, claim that I'm staking. Yeah, well, I suppose this would be a good point to talk about um, something we're actually working on right now behind the scenes is, like, launching a bit of a an official, like, Pale Reflections betting competition. Um, so not just hit theories on, like, who done it for the Carmine Beast, but also, like, all sorts of other predictions. And, and so something like this would be perfect. Like, you can be the first prediction in with this one. Mm. I was a little bit worried about how we were going to handle, like, two people predicting the same thing. I don't know if we have to worry about that with this one because it's, <laughs> like, it's really, like, it, it's, it's either a galaxy it. brain or... Yeah, it's going to be proven true <clears throat> at some um, level. But, yeah, so unfortunately that, that wasn't ready for this episode, so we can't launch it right now. But, like, we'll probably do it before the next one. But we'll, we're going to launch some sort of system where people can submit bets to, to us and, and we'll just sort of, you know, take the role of trying to manage everyone's predictions and when they predicted things um, so we can, you know, see all the people who make the galaxy brain plays like Ruben has just tried to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so stay tuned for that. We'll have it. Yeah. It'll come out at some point during the week, right? We'll, yeah, we'll try and we'll post it on Reddit whenever it's ready and we'll definitely talk about it in next week's episode um, as well. Yeah, cool. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, putting aside all the crazy theories, the fact that Lucy sees that her mum has literally a broken heart, right? Or, oh, yeah. It's fucking tragic. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, this whole scene with her mum is, is just tough to read yeah. in the sense that, like, it yeah. just, it, it's so awful. Um, her mom is like struggling with all these job applications yep. like we see how much lucy's on the verge of a breakdown uh, and based about what we learned about her mom in 1.2 i i'm 
I think her mum might not be far off. Like, I think these are both women who are very good at putting on a brave face. Yeah, yeah. And, and it just really sucks. Like, I think, again, I was talking about how Verona's maybe not that different from her dad. I think maybe Lucy's not that different from her mum. Like, to, to maybe draw on that a bit more, like, Lucy's mum's a nurse, right? Which is a bit of an occupation that can be famous for someone who's better at maybe taking care of others than themselves. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a lot of what I see in Lucy in this chapter. Like she's so much more worried about seeming strong and, uh, you know, like there's all this stuff about how she feels bad that she roped Avery into this. And that there's just so much, you know, she's latched onto this mission. Like she's accepted this responsibility. I see uh, something that crystallized to me in this chapter is I see now Lucy is someone who's very much like, taking the weight of the world on her shoulders and wanting to appear strong and in control and, you know, therefore not really taking the time to feel <laughs> her emotions and take care of herself. Yeah. And with her mum kind of doing the same thing, like who, who is taking care of Lucy and Lucy's mum? Mm. I, I, I'm, I, I'm somehow more worried about Lucy than I am about Avery right now. And I'm very worried about Avery. So um, that tells you how worried I am about Lucy and her potential to just collapse i suppose would be the best word yeah yeah it does feel like there's there's an emotional vulnerability here i mean i guess that's felt like it's the case for every single one of these three because they are teenage girls and it's just like i mean even people just have these vulnerabilities you know even more so when you're a teenager it just right, is but like it's, it's so isolating to be this this sort of person who yeah is trying to appear strong all the time, even after something traumatic like this, where you, you know, you, you trying to appear like everything's fine. So you, so the, it's the opposite of reaching out and trying to find like, you know, someone to help support you. Yeah. Um, we, and it, like that bottling, bottling stuff up like that, um, speaking from experience here, doesn't work out long term. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, we've touched on the idea that, um, that Avery is kind of explicitly very worried about being isolated. and But, you know, Verona and Lucy, we see now, also are quite isolated. Like, they just are. Which means the 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 group of three, they really are just all each other has in a lot of ways. And that's scary. It makes it so much mm. scarier for me that they are in this situation. Yeah, because it, they're all doing with their own shit. <laughs> they're, they're not always in the best position to support the others like they yeah. might need. Um, yeah. 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 Well, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. All th- obviously, all all three of the Kennedys are doing with with shit. I mean, that makes sense. But um, you know, the chapter, the focus of this chapter is is kind of Lucy's, and it has me very concerned for how long she can keep this up. Mm. Um. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um. Also, I guess back to you know honing in on silly details and and blowing them up. Um, <laughs> how dare you? I want to talk about Lucy's homework because <laughs> basically she has to ask this question and, and so she has to answer this question about why Canada was, you know, turned into a nation. Mm-hmm. And basically the big answer that sort of gets the most w- word focus is um, some company wanted to build a railway for trade. And I, I, is this something like there's something <laughs> that the Carmine Beast was preventing people from doing and that yeah like, or like, i don't know this like, this feels like one of those things where like later on we're gonna be like oh it was a metaphor yeah and, like, and so i'm trying i'm trying to like reverse engineer it without all the clues and extrapolate wildly these others are trying to build a kind of independent council system outside of the standard <laughs> thing and it was being blocked by the carmine beast trade motives i don't fucking know but 
it could like there's something that could be there i don't know well i mean like what could be interesting about all this is like what if kenneth's just the afterthought right because because the carmine beast is responsible for this huge area yeah. right so if there's sort of some magical trade route or whatever the fuck yeah. is analogous to that that somebody wanted to set up and needed to kill the carmine beast to do um Again, if Kennet is one of these small towns that's being, like, left and, you know, is going to be killed off by a highway being built nearby, I mean, that fits into the whole small town out of step with the world trope that yeah. exists in, in literature. Yeah. Yeah, I could see it. I don't know. I'm just, I'm I'm connecting the dots that are very far apart and aren't labelled and <laughs> I'm doing my best. And Trying to see what picture I don't think it it's working. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um so we could both we we're, we're both going to take turns um with alternate you know, crazy wildly. theories. Uh yeah, so Lucy basically kind of gets this point where she hasn't allowed herself to process for long enough that she it's just kind of blocked up, right? She's kind of yeah, clogged well, like, emotionally. This whole first half of the chapter was her finding things to do that prevented her from confronting what she was feeling and like falling apart because of it. Yeah. Like it were you know, there's some great prose when she's making the hot chocolate yeah. and she's just sort of stirring it and for a second it almost like gets to her so she just focuses on like finding a rhythm in how she's stirring it to yeah keep herself together but then she's kind of emotionally constipated herself here so she's not able yeah. to like process and go to sleep basically so she yeah. has this this night of not being able to sleep kind of working her way through people on her Arya stark style to curse list until she's interrupted <laughs> by Alpy, the man. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I actually, I kind of, I did enjoy this bit of, like, Lucy working through how she was going to curse everyone that's ever wronged her. Um, like, it was a bit relatable. I didn't do things <laughs> that were dissimilar as, as a teenager. Yeah. Um, after having a bad day. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how healthy this is as a way to deal to with, like, such a heavy trauma. Yeah. Um, we got a beat of, of Verona calling back to how Lucy threatened to curse avery in the first chapter um yeah yeah and uh this is kind of along the same lines lucy just kind of fantasizing about inflicting pain on people as a way of processing and potentially that's why her sight relates to violence it's kind of a reflection of her i don't know her fault yeah yeah and, and that all ties into that um the way she chose that knife as, as her personal item in the yeah. in the awakening ritual not overtly um, a violent person, but one that just kind of seems to gravitate towards violence slightly too much. Yeah, yeah, or who's who's seen too much of it. Yeah, um, true. I and then yeah, as you said, so Alpi shows up doing her best impersonation of like the ring. Yeah, it's very I Japanese guess. horror, isn't it? It it's yeah. I mean, it, it's hilariously terrifying. Like I was. I, I don't know, for some reason, I just didn't believe Albie was actually here to hurt her. So this whole yeah. scene just read hilarious to me because it was <laughs> such a horror movie scene. Yeah. And you could tell, like, Lucy is, you know, obviously barely holding it together. And I was yeah. just like, I, I was so confident it was going to work out. I was just like, this is fucking it's hilarious how terrifying <laughs> yeah. it is. What I don't know what Albie was playing at. Like, I kind of got the vibe that the trauma Lucy had just gone through was so juicy to Albie that she almost couldn't help but infect her with a nightmare. And then she kind of, you know, the way that like a vampire will see blood and be like, oh, I'm going to be overcome and then kind of pull themselves together. Right. That's the vibe I got from Albie here, which I found very fun. Yeah, I mean, like, one of the things Alpie says is she's like, you're due a nightmare. And I'm like, I just remember reading that and thinking, yep. yeah, I mean, yeah, she would be. Um, yeah, I don't know if this was just a test or if Alpie just can't help but be 
um, creepy as fuck. Be thirsty. Uh, and yeah. turn turn into goo for a bit. Um, <laughs> the way you do. But, yeah, I mean, she saves Lucy from having the as bad a nightmare as yeah. she should, which, yeah. that's nice. I mean, I, I assume that's a good thing. Yep. Again, I got my paranoid hat on today. Maybe it's maybe, not. Yeah, maybe, maybe that nightmare is an process. important. Yeah, I... I, yeah, I, look, I, I mean, you know, we could speculate wildly again, but the point is, like, it seems, it's just, Alpi seems to be here for good reason. Yeah. Like, there's that whole thing about how she wouldn't have actually touched her if she'd been asleep. Yeah. Which seems like, you know. How nice. For someone who breaks into your house and thump, thump, thumps around the, the walls and the roof, um, like, that's a pretty good respect of personal boundaries to not actually give her nightmares when she's already asleep. Good stuff. Good work, Alpi. I mean, I'm setting the bar very low, but <laughs> at least there's... At least, you know, it's not at the bottom rung. We've got the, yeah. sec- the second from the bottom rung here with Alpi. That's pretty good. Good stuff. Um, so, yeah, Lucy uh, eventually does fall asleep watching her teacher's primitive technology-style YouTube videos. Um, <laughs> and then... I loved that. That was <laughs> such a great little detail. Yeah. Uh, so then the next day, the group meet up at school and start to plan what their next moves are. Yeah, and, like, Lucy gives us a bit of a rundown on how the school's laid out. Well, it's more of a roast, really. Um, she shits on the school's layout, on the way the buildings are designed. Um, like, you know, it's like, this is such a small town. How is there, like, a huge fucking traffic jam? Um, <laughs> yeah. Because it's just, like, chaos. Um, like, it's, it's a, you know, Lucy likes to, I think, have the answers to the questions. Mm. And, you know, there's the chaos of, of this school drop-off rubs her the wrong way. Mm. Yeah, it's bonkers how poorly planned this seems to be. Yeah, although, you know, know, my my school's a similar-ish size to the the one that the Canneteers are going to, and it was actually kind of the same. They had, like, this one fucking roundabout that would just get, like, you know, you only only have, like, 50 kids in, in, like, the senior school or whatever, and the parents still have to come in one at a time. Mm. And, like, if their kid's not there, then they just fucking take up the space. Like, so, (laughs) I, I mean, I've seen it, like... yeah. The shit's real. Rough. Um, so Lucy starts dropping some juicy thoughts with the group, right? She she thinks they're being monitored because uh, uh, Toad Swallow just kind of came out of nowhere all of a sudden, which is fair <laughs> enough. And I it, think we called that out, didn't we? How he yeah, just sort of rolled out like, of a was bush. Was he just there? Yeah. Also, <laughs> she she's suspicious of why Charles was brought along on their camping trip. She kind of thinks that the others are plotting something, which, thanks, Lucy, I said it first, but, you know. You're allowed to have that thought too. Thanks for being on board with my theory. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm gonna take. I'm on team Verona with this one. Where like, uh, I think Verona is the one who sort of points out, like, mm. it, of course they're going to be monitoring the new people who they just sort of put in a position of power with no qualifications. Um, like they're basically this is like you know how like you'll be on probation when you start at a new job. Mm. like i think it's just that i think they're just having people watch the three people who they just gave tons of power to to make sure they're not you know going crazy bananas Mm. yeah yeah (laughs) i mean yeah it could be it could be sinister absolutely i just i think there's a plausible explanation i i think i'm just tending towards the sinister explanations for a lot of these things um so here's a fun beat uh when lucy's we're in lucy's head and she's capitalizing the word dancer or dancers when they're kind of talking to Verona about potentially becoming a capital d dancer and it's like it's showing us how lucy is explicitly seeing them as this kind of other clique which is great yeah i didn't notice that until you pointed it out but that's such a great detail Mm -hmm. um 
like you're right it, it formalizes the the group and their their sort of definition like in a, in a much more concrete way um yeah. uh, in saying that though i i overall love the way that this small school isn't as you know divided into those movie tropes where you've got you know the jocks and the, <laughs> yeah the nerds and, and stuff because again I, I went to a similar size school and it wasn't quite like that it was a bit more of a jumbly mess because there aren't yeah. enough people for everyone to form distinct groups like that I feel like um, I didn't go to a small school. I mean, it wasn't huge, but it wasn't small. But I, maybe it's just, a, it feels like it was just an American thing of this, like, very clicky maybe. high school. Yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah, probably. Like, I think it's, yeah, I, I, it's just more interesting for me to read a story that's not going to try and, you know, build distinct clicks like that. Mm. Um, if for no other reason than it's been done a million times. Yeah, totally. Um but like i i also want to talk about the dancer stuff because it seems like maybe they're going to back off verona now like these these well, dancers come yeah. up and they're like hey verona are you interested and she sort of explains why she's not and then they're sort of like oh okay, okay we'll, we'll yeah. get her to let up and there's there's yeah. a sense that that might actually happen and it, it can't be a coincidence <laughs> that that's suddenly happening two days after or the first day of school after she awoke right i i don't know if that yeah that I'm thinking, like, why is this in the story if that's it, right? If if they just yeah. back off. And your explanation of it's a kind of demonstration of the fact that she just kind of has more influence over the world through her words now, right? That that totally could be it. But I just feel like there's got to be something else there. I, I think there is too. I just have no fucking clue. Yeah, I know. What could it possibly be? <laughs> Who knows? Um, yeah, but there's, like, something where it's just, like, it, yeah, it it feels way too crazy to me that it's just suddenly they came up and were like, oh, okay, you don't want to, that's fine, all of a sudden after, like, you know, it was a joke in 1.1 how they've been pestering her yeah. for years. Um, but, like, also as well, it's a very Verona thing where she's like, the reason she doesn't want to do the dancing is because even while she's maybe quite naturally talented, it's like she tried it for a bit and it was, like, all too much work and practice and repetition. Yeah. And uh, she doesn't like that. And I just can't help but think, you know, you're just doing your first weekend of magic. And what if you find out that this is actually just a lot of work and repetition? Are you going to want to drop it too? Like there's this very like, like hedonistic sort of trait to Verona where she's mm. just, she doesn't like putting in the work for stuff. We saw it with the chores and I'm just, yeah. you know, very nervous that what if she decides that the practice is more work than it is fun and she's kind of trapped in it. Well, alternatively, it, it, it could be that she kind of tends towards instant gratification type things. Which yeah, then means yeah. she's more likely to, I mean, she already has made deals with others <laughs> that she jumps in without thinking about them too much, right? Yes. Yeah. Instant gratification is exactly the sort of phrase I was looking for. And like, yeah, what's she going to start to do either when that isn't an option or you're right? What or is she going to fall into traps? Yeah. 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 Um, um yeah so i you know i guess we've talked about how we're worried for lucy and, and avery so let's just chuck verona on the list yep of course uh we get to the point where the class ranker rankings come out and i mean okay so i talked about i think it was last chapter how i thought the hungry choir was related to class ranker this seems like they're not the class the hungry choir ritual seems to be something other than what we've explicitly seen so far um but the fact that lucy's reaction to this is she 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 feels it as everyone's phone buzzes in unison she feels this moment hanging over everyone and she explicitly says she felt like it was the kind of thing that someone might want to harness or already be harnessing 
which makes me feel like while class ranker isn't explicitly the ritual, it is related. Like it is the way that they are kind of finding the vulnerable that they are preying on. I don't know. I again not confirmed, but feels very plausible. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sticking to my theory that it's just benign human shittiness. Yeah. Like yeah. I I think maybe what what the link there could be is. It's those vulnerable people on the bottom of the social ladder or whatever that like that become the targets of these sorts of things. Like it's the people who are most at risk who, you know, and again, I'm tying it back to this justice metaphor a bit, but you know, mm. like you, you literally get this this app that says, here is the social hierarchy of this class yep. along one vector. Yeah. And then, you know, we're literally finding out that the people on the bottom are the most vulnerable. Um it's hard like i i'm i'm just happy to see it as something that is just like regular human people being shitty it, it could end up being something else but um like i i could see it just being a device to sort of build a sort of social hierarchy and then and then comment on it through that yeah fair enough i i think the main thing that makes me think it's not explicitly related is it does feel a little too obvious to me now <laughs> um but we'll see yeah um so the next thing i, I don't know what this is there's this bit where Lucy has just found out she's at the bottom and they're having a conversation. And maybe I've just got the rule of three on the brain this chapter, but the word three, the number three comes up so many times in the, in these like six or seven lines. It's I've said it maybe three times, or you could be a lot of people's third choices. I don't want to be third choices. Oh, I might have a few choice words for them and said it three times. And it's like, just like the density of threes in this section is so high. (laughs) I don't know what it is. I don't, I just, it just flagged to me as like, why are there so many threes here? Yeah, um, I, I, I don't have an answer to it, but you, <laughs> I mean, you're right. There's a lot of them. Um, and I, have, I have no even conception of what possibly this could be for. <laughs> just flagged as like, what's going on? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, but I mean, should we talk about like how much of a of of fun as a reader um clusterfuck this app ended up being it's like you know who who could have seen this coming mm-hmm. that's the class ranker was a bad idea no way. Um, <laughs> uh, i i think what's like clever about it is the way wildbo's managed to think of a different way for it to hurt each kenneteer mm. um you know like, like obviously you know this this is awful that it's hurting them all but like it I'm I'm actually really impressed with the way it's like you know Avery is confirmed as as the only lesbian in their sort of whole class, yep. so you know that's hitting her mark of like the loneliness. Yeah. Um. Lucy obviously kind of has no one in her corner. Um, yep. And and she's sort of she's all alone, and she she has to appear strong and like she's coping with it, hitting her thing. Um. And then like Verona's is probably the most subtle, and I may be jumping into the extra material a bit early here, but um. She only got points for a mutual match, which is like we get reminded here again of something we were told in one point one, which is like uh, uh, Verona didn't actually pick people she's interested in. Mm. She she just picked people who she thought weren't going to get many votes. Yeah. Now her result is she only got one mutual match, which means one of the people she kind of not like pity voted, but like you know kind of disingenuously voted for, um, has seen that like they were a mutual match. Yeah. Um, which is why it just has the potential to explode as like Verona not having taken the app seriously. And not like, having you know, considered she, other people's feelings when she was doing it, which kind of... Yeah, exactly. So again, it, it's yeah. hitting that Verona character flaw. She's... Yeah. I, I think all three of them hit their kind of issues and flaws in, in very like interesting ways. So like Verona's, it's, she didn't take this seriously. She didn't think it through. And now it's got the potential because this, this poor guy is probably thinking that she's as into him as, 
as he is to her mm-hmm. and she can't lie now so it's just probably <laughs> going to explode um so yeah like just from a writing perspective i was really impressed that we managed to hit all three of them on their own very personal vector um so yeah i mean the damage is far from done with this stupid app oh, i yeah. think definitely um so gabe is the boy who gets no votes and he kind of runs out of the room and lucy follows him to the boy's bathroom where he f- where she finds that he has this strange piece of paper which is bait it's the hungry choir's bait and it seems like he was about to bite at it right yeah i mean yeah the, like there's all this weird like sight stuff going on where she sees like connections and yeah red knives stabbing at what's a red watercolor yeah don't fully understand it all but it's basically like yeah there were lots of bad vibes coming out of this piece of paper yeah um should we touch on this site here because this is right when they start talking about some of the site as well yeah yeah so we we they discuss the different ways that their site has manifested lucy's we know is the knives really and she kind of characterizes it as being able to see violence um yeah or not just violence she sort of sees emotions like there's bits where it's like you know people um there's there's somebody who gets hurt and she sees like this cold like blue blackness sort of take over them yeah so there's like this ability to sense emotions to hers um not not just like violence and anger like i think it might be her mum who just has like around that sword wound going through her heart like this yeah this dark patch so of, of the watercolors the way lucy characterizes it is hurt and danger specifically um, right yeah and which is interesting especially because we've been talking about the idea i think the, the thing that this comes to to me is the idea that lucy has this kind of uh almost tendency to to have these like to kill lists which i don't know maybe that's like fine but is slightly more violent than the others. Um, I don't know if yeah. that's a, a flaw that we're going to start playing into. Every isolation obviously plays into the bands and connections that she seems to be able to see. And then we get fucking, I think we talked about that last week, yeah. Yeah. And we get Verona, who s- describes things as meaty... She sees meaty things pressing against the inside of the plastic sheeting, which... What? Does that... What <laughs> yeah, that, the fuck? I mean... It, <laughs> Yeah, so we've got, like, I think it's interesting because I think Mist, no, it w- would have been Edith mm. um, in the camping scene. It was sort of like the site will sort of exacerbate your, your natural tendencies yeah. or, or work off of them. Yeah. So, you know, like we saw, like, Avery had that focus on the connections and she could see these yeah. handprints everywhere. And, yeah, as you just said, Lucy's got the, the violence and the daggers and everything. We didn't get too good a look at Verona's. We know no. it lets her see in the dark, but we don't, like... I don't think that will be all of it because that's that's like a shit like you know if Avery has a very firm grasp on all the connections between things and Verona sorry and and Lucy sees all these like emotions and stuff going on and then like Verona just got sees in the dark like yeah. I, that feels so much flatter to me um so like I wonder what else there is to her yeah um uh, uh, wait wait what's just the flavor her, of it that we're whole, gonna see yeah yeah like. I wonder if it's like, I, like I'm just trying to theorize here based on you know if if it is sort of working off their natural tendencies yeah. to me I I would imagine um, Verona would get some sort of true so maybe she's more inclined to see the spirits or something you know like she understands or yeah. her focus is on the fundamentals of this universe so I would imagine she's going to see something more fundamental to 
things i yeah i don't know but like it feels like hers is the one i have the worst grasp on at this point yes i think we'll get more on it the next time we're in her head you know in a chapter or two's time um yeah yeah but yeah we see the flyer the hungry choir's bait and uh should we start talking about it um yeah i'll quick quickly before we do because that's like the extra material yeah. it, it was it was actually just the flyer and some screenshots of the app um I do want to quickly mention, I love all these little details as they're discussing the flyer in, in 1.6 where like it, it actually tries to escape from Lucy. Yeah. Like she, she doesn't focus on it for a second and then it's like on the ground in the corner of the room mm. and she has to like tell this piece of paper to not escape, which is just like <laughs> hilarious. Um, yeah, it definitely- And then the three of them try to go to the website that's on the flyer and it it blocks them which is just to me sort of confirmation that's like this is a bad thing that yeah. will harm people because the hungry choir has said it can't harm it's, them and it's just mysteriously blocked the three of them from visiting the website yeah. which is like its way of keeping them from harm exactly. is my interpretation totally. that was my exact same thought like it's actively hiding itself from them as much as it can so that it has the minimal chance of crossing their path yeah which is just like you know so it's like okay so this is bad shit and a bunch of people have got these flyers is something else they quickly talk about based on the site yeah so um yeah i mean this will be fun i think it's yep. tomorrow night it's the deadline now we've got for the hungry choirs shit going down yep mm. um so yeah let's dive into the flyer basically the flyer is a bad photocopying job between two things one that seems to be talking about singing and one that seems to be talking about eating so put those things together and what do you have the hungry choir <laughs> Um, yeah. And I mean, I, I just want to compliment like Wobbo on how like perfectly unreadable yeah, this sort of was. I, I like, couldn't get anything I, from it. I, I kept looking at it and it was just like, it was in this uncanny valley zone of like text comprehension where I was like, there's words in here. And I'd stare at them for like a minute and it was like, no, okay, I can't read any more yeah. of this. Like, like this is, it, it was too perfectly poorly done to be readable. Um, and, and like, I think that was like a great, way to capture sort of the way this is meant to work in universe like it's meant to suck you in through your curiosity i think and like that's what it did for me is like there was just this sense as as i was looking at it of like oh there's there's more to be found here and i just wanted to put the pieces of the puzzle together and i think that is in in pale how it is meant to work well yeah Um, if there was a slightly that's very fun if there was a slightly legible url at the end of this flight i would totally go of like, well, okay, yeah. let me figure out what's going on here, right? Like 100% I would. Um, I want to call out specifically a user called Ojon, who in the comments kind of does a lot of really good deciphering of stuff. And um, they talk about they found, they figured out kind of that there are references to Ontario ghost towns there, Nefton, Winisk, and Sulfide, all ghost towns in Ontario, um, which seems to indicate, uh, there's also stuff around the faces of the moon that seem to be relevant here, seeming to indicate like, that possibly the hungry choir is like remnants of these ghost towns and things are going to happen during um the the waxing or waning gibbous cycles of the moon like some interesting details not enough to really know what's going on but enough to hint at some cool stuff i mean the fact that they're ghost towns um has me you know concerned for is kennett next yeah exactly are these are these the places the hungry choir has already been yeah um which is which is fun um brockton vale north haverbrook (laughs) um yeah yeah so uh, yeah i don't know like i i think it's really interesting how the food came into it a lot more than we thought like i think when we talked about the the avery's family singing contest theory i was very focused on the singing part yeah whereas it seems to be some mixture of eating and singing 
yes ritual I, i'm so excited to see the next steps in this ritual um also terrified obviously um but yeah i mean yeah well done to ojon for managing to decipher some of that because it, 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 it was some not, real good stuff in there um yeah i mean it, it's yeah it, it, it's i i just i love i love this as a little bit of bonus content that like you know gets sucked in like i think the the fact that ojon put probably put a lot of effort into deciphering this is a testament to how sort of uh, you know how well this would capture your imagination yeah this fire um yeah that's all the stuff that's all the chapters for this week uh we'll talk about the responses to our discussion question in a second but before then elliot i just want to let you know that i was right 1.7 is from avery's perspective <laughs> okay thanks <laughs> um dang it um yeah oh actually before we leave the bonus content i want to talk about the app quickly yeah, sure. um, we already sorry touched on the extra stuff we learned about verona as well um but i want to talk about from a game design perspective how so you know how the app rewards you so many extra points for it being like a mutual like Mm. that does seem designed to me to reinforce like taking safe bets or like you know if you know someone's into you pretending to be into them because like to game it Mm. i I don't know am i am i overreading and stuff again but it's like that that signals to me how the app is a bit more built for like building drama rather than genuine matchmaking mm, so a collaboration between the hungry choir and the fairy <laughs> sure yeah yeah no you're right I, I i was looking at this app and i i couldn't think of anything that i really wanted to pull out except the profile picture selection for these children is interesting um the person who got who's a hardcore christian and had a picture of a of a crucifix as their profile picture got more points than lucy which is very sad uh, sorry i'm just pulling it up now oh yeah yeah they uh elena they were second from the bottom i think yeah 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 uh yeah just who, who thought this was a good idea yeah. in universe <laughs> i mean it's a great <laughs> idea it's a great storytelling like chaos cedar but yeah yeah <sighs> um yeah so let's let's get into our discussion question i suppose yeah um where we just sort of asked um who can you, know, you trust who, who can the Kennedys trust? We didn't get too many answers to this one, which I think because most people were sort of on the same page. Yeah. Um, Charles, like often brought up as can be trusted. Yes, we got we got like a, a no one, maybe Charles a few times from people like Landis nine six three. Uh, Megafire says Charles because he seems too shit and powerless to be doing anything else. Basically, everyone hates him. Mm-hmm. Like it's not like he would actually survive if anyone was legitimately against him. Yep, he's easy pickings. Um, yeah, we got a great answer from uh, Weir White that went into explicit detail on everyone and why they can't be trusted. It was the most thought out no one answer that we got. <laughs> uh, technically, their answer was no one except each other for now, um, which was a very optimistic viewpoint that Weir White's taking. Um, but it, yeah, it was a very it was a very well reasoned out uh, uh, answer uh, as to why no one is trustworthy. Yeah. Um, and then Rid Tom and the cool noob. Uh, that's my favorite answer radio the question. show <laughs> yeah <laughs> welcome to Red Tom and the Cool Noob um, yes they, they both they both kind of accurately uh, pointed out that Miss just seems like someone who can't be trusted because she seems to be hiding stuff yeah uh, literally um, not quite <laughs> answering the discussion question but it's not wrong yeah true um, but uh, to lead us into our bonus bit for mm. today I want to talk about two other comments that we got which were from uh, Fabiqua and I tinker, therefore I am. Mm-hmm. Um, who both pointed out, you know, you know, we talked last last week about these four colors uh, for these four guardian entities like Carmine and 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 Co. Yeah. Um, and 
both of these users suggested possible matches for what these colors you know represent yeah. in other circles yeah uh so what we've both done is gone and taken one of their interpretations and, and we'll, we'll talk about them each today because they were both pretty interesting yeah um do you want to start with yours elliot um, yeah, so I, I've gone chasing down uh, Fabiqua's uh, link that they made, um, which was that the these colors, red, gold, white, and black, um, actually link to the sort of four steps of um, the magnum opus of alchemy. Um, so like for those who don't know, alchemy is basically like trying to turn bland shit into cool shit, like, you know, normal metal into gold or creating the philosopher's stone which would like you know cure all ailments mm. and and make you immortal like all that sort of uh jazz but what's interesting is like a lot of um alchemy stuff al- alchemical mm. um stuff has kind of been adapted into a lot more like new age type mysticism um and even um like jungian psychology uh ties a lot of its concepts to these four steps yeah so there's there's some really interesting sort of extra you know mystic stuff associated with this which obviously makes it a bit more relevant to to pale um so so in this sort of the great work of, of alchemy which is trying to build you know the philosopher's stone the first step is is the blackness um which basically is all about like making everything uniform so they they burn basically everything into ash um and in this in this sort of psychology psychological interpretation this is you know when so the the psychological interpretation is instead of building like a, a stone for immortality it's about sort of achieving enlightenment or like a fulfillment of yourself mm. um and so this first step the blackness is basically about hitting your low point where you just have this really bad event that breaks you down and and gets you to the point where you have to build yourself back up because you're falling apart yeah um and so then you move on to like the second stage which is the whiteness which you know is basically about identifying all the blackness in your life so when you hit this low point you've basically got all these uh, they call them like shadows you know hanging over you and, and holding you down mm. and the whiteness is basically the point where you start to see them and like remove the unnecessary ones from your worldview mm. so you're, you're identifying the things that are holding you down and basically casting them off um essentially and back in Stoneland, it's about like splitting things into fundamental parts i didn't really get it mm. um then you move on to the golden step the yellowness which is you know in the stone this is where you actually convert shitty metal into cool metal so it's the actual transmutation a- and similarly in the jungian psychology it, this is the part where you know now that you've cast off all the bad parts of yourself you start to evolve into someone who's a bit more refined and can they, they call it like the old the wise old man or the wise old woman <laughs> part where you become the trope of someone yeah. who's like kind of got their shit figured out and you can actually advise others so you know you're that trope of somebody who is able to tell people or give people advice and help them on their own journey basically right um and then and so then you move into the fourth and final step our carmine step the redness um and this is like the actualization so in terms of the like building the philosopher's stone this is where you take something like your purified gold that you've converted and solidify it in a way that means it won't switch back so right. like actually so make it make it your as of what it is yes cementing, c- cementing it yeah yeah uh and so in in the jungian psychology and the, and the more new age mystic stuff this is where you've sort of gone from being the the old wise person who's you know um 
giving out this advice to having such a solidified concept of yourself and your role based yeah. on helping others yeah. that you basically like ascend and become, you know, enlightened or, or whatever the hell, yeah. um, depending on which part you're in. Mm. Um, yeah. So I don't really, I don't have any theories about how any of this would actually map <laughs> to the story. Yeah, I got um, lost forgetting that we were thinking about how to interpret the, the big four. I'm trying to, yeah, I'm thinking about it and I'm, tr- I, this is like a, a step process, right? So, black turns to white turns to yellow turns to red which makes me wonder how those like if we apply that here i I struggle to apply it because it can't be applied in terms of like these four things existing all together at once and getting interpretations yeah like i guess if we wanted to try and tie it to our four entities i'd maybe try and take the step back and and rather than looking at the process look at what each process represents represents. like like the you know the blackness was all about breaking things down mm-hmm. and you know that was our sort of deathy one and yeah. then if, if the whiteness is all about kind of like refinement sh- shedding yeah. shedding bad things yeah and then um so our golden centipede man is the the wise old person who i don't know is someone who offers advice mm. or something <laughs> i don't know and then could be uh carmine carmine was just the most fulfilled i guess it doesn't really fit with the war at all yeah. which is why i think this probably doesn't re- relate too concretely um to our four entities here but may- maybe it'll come in a little bit I don't yeah. know. it was fun to learn about yeah way. sure um i looked up uh, the one that i tinker therefore i am brought up was the, which is this idea of the native american or also known as the indigenous medicine wheel um so basically this is a circle that's divided into four kind of slices uh, four four quadrants um and it it represents the circle as this one the kind of aspects of being all of the natural world, kind of every concept, and then divide it into four quadrants, which represent four different things. Um, and uh, the, the ones that we probably want to talk about the most here are the white quadrant as mental or decisions, the yellow quadrant as spiritual or values, red as emotional or reactions, and black as the physical body or, like, actions. Um, but there are, a lot of, uh, there are a lot of interpretations, basically. You could apply it to a lot of different areas. So you would have maybe the four seasons or the four elements or the four stages of life being birth, childhood, or, or to be, uh, adulthood. Uh, sorry, birth, kind of childhood or ad- adolescence, adulthood, and old age. Um, right. And so there's a lot of different kind of concepts that this could relate to. I, I think I, I tried to mostly look at the red concepts here to see what felt like it related to the Carman Beast. And from there, potentially, yep. we can take some inferences from that towards the other four, the other three of the group. Uh, but there, there was some stuff. So, for example, um, they could be related to, like, heavenly bodies. Uh, yellow would be the sun, I think it was. Uh, black was space, white was stars, and red was the moon, I believe. Or black was earth, white was stars, and red was the moon. So the moon association... Oh, I mean, red and the moon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That kind of fits for the Carmine Beast based on what we saw before. Um, also, I talked about the stages of life, and red relates to adolescence, uh, childhood or adolescence, which potentially implies why the trio are teenagers. That might have given them a stronger connection to the Carmine Beast, maybe is something that, that will be relevant here. Um, I, I tried to think on how I could apply the, the other aspects from the white, yellow, and black to the three that we met in 1.3, but I, I didn't find anything super tangible, honestly. Again, it felt like there were some connections there that felt pretty good, like the moon connection when I noticed that was like, oh, cool, this is something. But um, there was nothing that really felt like I could use it to make inferences about things that were going on in the future. So we'll we'll keep an eye on that and see if anything else seems to present itself. 
Yeah. So not the most successful bonus <laughs> but bit. But just fun of, to of learn research, about, um, you know. The yeah. Well, I think I think at the very least, even if neither of these two interpretations map too concretely to uh, what's going on in Kennet, I would be more than willing to believe that, like, you know, while Bo took this somewhat flexible concept of the, you know, indigenous medicine yeah. wheel and, like, use that to decide the four colours. Yeah, that, like, and kind of map some you know, loose theming onto as well. Yeah, or, and so even if he kind of made his own interpretations of what the four mapped to, it's sort of like, it, it, it would surprise me to learn it's a complete coincidence that this, you know, indigenous wheel maps to these four native beasts that we're seeing yeah. in... um in in Kennet. yeah definitely um that's the end of our episode for this week so thanks everyone for joining us yeah uh we don't have a discussion question this week but feel free to leave your comments on this uh, episode in our discussion thread which we link down in the show notes and we'll uh have the prediction thing coming up midweek that you can check in on and make some predictions with too Yes, uh, so instead of the usual discussion question this week, we're just going to focus on getting that prediction sort of competition submission system up yeah. so that uh, rather than answering the discussion question, you can all get your galaxy brain takes uh, into us. Hell yeah. Um, if you want to support this show, please do leave us a review on your podcasting application of choice. It helps new people find the show, which will help promote Wildbo's work in general as well as the Doof Media Network. So, um... Leave a review if you'd like, and that would be very much appreciated. Yes, uh, and if you want to learn more about what's going on at Doof, uh, head on over to doofmedia.com. Uh, there's so many shows going on right now. I think the book club was, you know, about eight hours ago when this episode comes yep. out. So um, worth uh, worth I'm going to have a look that at out that. on the uh, Doof YouTube. The, uh, the book clubs are always fun. Yep, there'll also be uh, an audio copy of it on the Doofcast feed soon. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to see Elliot do his live reactions to every new chapter as it comes out, check out our Twitter feed, which is at MediaMD Podcast. Yes, uh, you know, those live reads do contain packed spoilers uh, and bad takes. So <laughs> The two things check that people out. come to this show for. <laughs> um, um, if if yeah. you want to support the Doof Media Network, head to patreon.com forward slash Doof Media. Uh, you get all kinds of cool perks if you become one of our patrons, like being able to vote in the book club uh decision um yes and and the others there's the game club uh, voting which that's will be starting week. oh sorry the yes. voting is this week but the game club episode itself yes. is next week yeah yep um and don't forget to stop by wildbo's patreon patreon.com forward slash wildbo without wildbo we wouldn't even have class ranker oh tragedy do you think someone's going to make an actual class ranker app now based on this or does something Honestly, like it exist maybe it does uh, yeah God. i was gonna say i wouldn't be surprised to learn like there's so many trash apps out there like this might have been based on something yeah. that wildbo's seen in the wild Ouch. um anyway for more class ranker discussion make sure you come back again next week but for now see you next time bye